Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 4, An American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black, barreling towards Christmas. I'm recording this about two weeks uh, before Christmas. It may well be Christmas by the time you hear this episode just my least favorite time of the year. Now, I've written about this on my Substack, and you can read all my bah humblings over there. But yeah, you know, Christmas, just not a fan. Um, you know, there's some good things. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. My daughter came home from Budapest a couple of days ago. She's been there for the semester abroad. She got home, and uh, it's been great having her here for the winter break and the holiday. Yesterday, we did a little tree decorating. I made some dinner for everybody. So it's like, you know, how much of a Scrooge can I possibly be when I have my family arrayed around me and me around them? Perhaps I doth protest it too much. And yet, here we are, you know, Scrooging around the holidays, grinching up Christmas like a big old green noxious fart. That's what I am. I'm an old noxious emanation as the holidays approach, and I'm not going to feel too badly about it. That's just who I am. I'm just an old sourpuss. But as I say, it is nice having the family all home for the first time in quite a while. I'm enjoying that. I'm also enjoying, uh, oh, I bought this, uh, you know, speaking of presents, I bought something for myself maybe about a month ago, this very intricate and detailed poker course that I've been taking. You know, I play poker and got myself a poker course, 99 bucks. And it's a series of videos and three different grades. There's grade zero, grade one, and grade two. I'm almost all the way through grade zero. It's taught by a British guy, so that's why they can say things like grade zero without feeling like turds. Speaking of emanations, I mean, this dude, 
calling the first part of his class grade zero. It's just annoying. But the material's very good, and I'm working my way through it. And uh, just, you know, making gobs of money in the process. That's not true. Never has been, never will be. But gobs of money is the central thesis that runs through this American life, mine and Clyde Griffith's. One of ours is a comedy, one is a tragedy, although it's hard to know at this point which is which. I like, let's, let's just say mine's the comedy. Clyde's is entitled an American tragedy, so we already know things are going to turn out like shit for him, but for me, jury's still out. We don't know. No, we don't know who's writing the story of my life and whether, whether that entity has a sense of humor or not. But I suspect so, because if there's one thing we know about God... It's, uh, they got a little smile, don't they? Don't they? That God. That God has quite a little sense of humor. Well, we're chancing fate on American, in American tragedy because you've got a bunch of kids on this Packard speeding along winter roads. You've got Sparser, who, uh, basically has stolen a car for the purposes of this joyride. And you've got Griffiths and his gal, Hortense, and you've got Higby and Tina Kogel and all the others, whoever else is in that car. And last time we last time we saw them, they were heading off to, you know, a little dance and celebration and maybe some drinks and maybe some lovemaking too at the inn. That seems to be what's on the books for everybody. But you've got Sparser speeding along at a mighty pace. And that's that's where we left them last time. I was sort of hoping that there was going to be a crash and a tumble. But who knows? I guess the only way to know is to pick it up with chapter 17 in American Tragedy. So the last time we, we met them, the car was speeding at breakneck pace over a snowy right road in between white fields. And uh, Sparser was attempting to see how fast he could go on such a road. Let's pick it up right there. Dark vignettes of wood went by to right and left. Fields away, sentinel hills rose and fell like waves. A wide-armed scarecrow fluttering in the wind, its tall, decayed hat awry, stood near at hand in one place. And from near it, a flock of crows, a flock of crows, come on now, Dreiser, we know better than that. If the one, The one reason to include a bundle of crows in anything is that so you can call it a murder. It's a murder of crows. We all know that. A flock of crows rose and winged direct toward a distant wood, lightly penciled against a foreground of snow. Maybe Dreiser didn't want to foreshadow too much because I keep hoping this car is going to turn over and everybody's going to die, but that's probably not going to happen. In the front seat sat Sparser, guiding the car beside Laura Sipe. That's a good name. Sipe, with the air of one to whom such a magnificent car was a commonplace thing. He was really more interested in Hortense, yet felt it incumbent on him, for the time being anyhow, to show some attention to Laura Sipe, and not to be outdone in gallantry by the others. He now put one arm around Laura Sipe, while he guided the car with the other, a feat which troubled Clyde, who was still dubious about the wisdom of taking the car at all. They might all be wrecked by such fast driving. 
Hortense was only interested by the fact that Sparser had obviously manifested his interest in her, that he had to pay some attention to Laura Sipe whether he wanted to or not, and when she saw him pull her to him and asked her grandly if she had done much automobiling about Kansas City, she merely smiled to herself. So, Hortense, her antennae ever attuned to the affections of the opposite sex, recognizes that Sparser has his eyes set on her and derives some grim satisfaction from him faking it with Laura Sipe. But Ratterer, noting the move, nudged Lucille Nicholas, and she in turn nudged Higby in order to attract his attention to the affectional development ahead. Getting comfortable up front there, Willard? Called Ratterer genially in order to make friends with him. I'll say I am, replied Sparser gaily and without turning. How about you, girly? Oh, I'm all right, Laura Sipe replied. But Clyde was thinking that of all the girls present, none was really so pretty as Hortense. Not nearly. She had come garbed in a red and black dress with a very red, with a very dark red poke bonnet to match, and on her left cheek, just below her small rouged mouth, she had pasted a minute square of black court plaster in imitation of some picture beauty she had seen. In fact, before the outing began, she had been determined to outshine all the others present and distinctly she was now feeling that she was succeeding, and Clyde, for himself, was agreeing with her. You're the cutest thing here, whispered Clyde, hugging her fondly. Gee, but you can pour on the molasses, kid, when you want to, she called out loud, and the others laughed, and Clyde flushed slightly. That's a pretty good expression. You can pour on the molasses, kid, when you want to. <laughs> I'm going to try to remember that. You know, when somebody's pouring it on thick. Oh, you're really pouring on the molasses, aren't you there, kid? Pretty good. Beyond Mineville, about six miles, the car came to a bend in a hollow where there was a country store. And here, Hagland, Higby, and Ratterer got out to fetch candy, cigarettes, and ice cream cones and ginger ale. And after that came Liberty, and then several miles this side of Excelsior Springs, they sighted the wigwam, which was nothing more than an old two-story farmhouse snuggled against a rise of ground behind it. There was, however, adjoining it on one side, a newer and larger one-story addition, consisting of the dining room, the dance floor, and concealed by a partition at one end, a bar. An open fire flickered cheerfully here in a large fireplace, down in a hollow across the road might be seen the Benton River or Creek, now frozen solid. Now, why is it called either the Benton River or Creek? Maybe it just depends on how it's flowing. Maybe when it's flowing in the springtime, yeah, they call it the Benton River, and then when it dries up in the summer, they call it a creek. Hard to know. But, you know, these country folk, they got, they got ten words for, for just about everything. You know, anything natural, the natural world anyway. I don't know if that's true. I'm just saying things. But it did strike me that they stopped to get ice cream cones in the middle of winter. Candy, cigarettes, ice cream cones, and ginger ale. Well, 
you know how these kids are when they're young, you know, they're adolescents, they don't feel the cold at all. They're rushing through the wind-whipped fields and probably barely feeling hardly a chill at all. And why not? They've got the warm flesh of gals to press themselves against. And the gals have the warm and coarse flesh of boys to press against themselves. You know, and the warmth of the cigarettes that they share, they're probably feeling pretty fine, aren't they? And they get to the their destination, the big wigwam inn, and there they are. Well, there's your river, called Higby cheerfully as he helped Tina Kogel out of the car, for he was already very much warmed by several drinks he had taken on route. So they're drunk, and they're driving as fast as they can. Ah, well, who can blame them? Who can blame them? It's youth, after all, isn't it? Youth does stupid things all the time, and eh, most of them turn out just fine. They all paused for a moment to admire the stream. Well, now it's not only a river and a creek, it's also a stream, winding away among the trees. I wanted this bunch to bring their skates and go down there, sighed Haglin, but they wouldn't. Well, that's all right. By then, Lucille Nicholas, seeing a flicker of flame reflected in one of the small windows of the inn, called, Oh, see, they got a fire. The car was parked, and they all trooped into the end, into the inn, and at once Higby briskly went over and started the large, noisy, clattery, tinny Nickelodeon with a nickel. And to rival him, and for a prank, Heglin ran to the Victrola, which stood in one corner and put on a record of the grizzly bear, which he found lying there. At the first sounds of this strain, which they all knew, Tina Kogel called, Oh, let's all dance to that, will ya? Can't you stop that other old thing, she added. Well, sure, after it runs down, explained Ratterer laughingly. The only way to stop that thing is to not feed it any nickels. But now, a waiter coming in, Higby began to inquire what everybody wanted. And in the meantime, to show off her charms, Hortense had taken the center of the floor and was attempting to imitate a grizzly bear walking on its hind legs, which she could do amusingly enough, quite gracefully. Well, yeah, I mean, Hortense Briggs, she can do just about anything with grace, can she not? Fine-looking gal like that, even imitating a grizzly bear up on its hind legs and doing it with style and panache. That's, your, that's what you want in a gal. Get, you, get yourself a gal who can cook and clean and imitate a grizzly bear, but do so gracefully. I mean, any, look, any old skirt can imitate a grizzly bear. We all know that, right? You can't, you, you, you can't walk down the street in any major metropolitan area these days without seeing some gal all dolled up walking on her hind legs imitating a grizzly bear. Now, that's just a common occurrence in these parts. But can she do it gracefully? That's what charm school is for, after all, is it not? That's the whole point of finishing school. You learn how to ballroom dance and write calligraphy, and walk on your hind legs like a grizzly bear, but gracefully. Spencer, seeing her alone in the center of the floor, was anxious to interest her now, followed her, and tried to imitate her motions from behind. Finding him clever at it and anxious to dance, she finally abandoned the imitation and, giving him her arms, went one-stepping about the room most vividly. 
At once, Clyde, who was by no means as good a dancer, became jealous, painfully so. In his eagerness for her, it seemed unfair to him that he should be deserted by her so early, at the very beginning of things. But she, becoming interested in Sparser, who seemed more worldly wise, paid no attention at all to Clyde for the time being, but went dancing with her new conquest, his rhythmic skill seeming charmingly to match her own. And then, not to be out of it, the others at once chose partners, Heglin dancing with Maida, Radderer with Lucille, and Higby with Tina Kogel. This left Laura Sipe for Clyde, who did not like her very much. She was not as perfect as she might be, a plump, pudgy-faced girl with inadequate, sensual blue eyes, and Clyde, lacking any exceptional skill, they danced nothing but the conventional one-step while the others were dipping and lurching and spinning. Oh, tragedy among tragedies. Here we are, barely got to the wigwam, and already Hortense Briggs has forgotten her promise to Clyde and has ditched him for Sparser. Well, she hasn't exactly made an explicit promise to Clyde, but they both understood the contours of the negotiation they had made. They're going to go to the wigwam and they're going to do it. I mean, that's just basic math, is it not? That's just arithmetic. And uh, now he's stuck with poor old Laura Sipe, whose blue eyes were sensual but hardly alluring. So there has been a crash after all. Not an automobile crash, but the crash of the human heart. Landed no more painfully in the snow than if it had been thrust from a speeding automobile. Let's take a break, shall we not? Pick it up in a moment, here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Fail Better. David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. 
Back on Obscure and Trouble on the Dance Floor. Panic at the disco as Clyde observes his gal pal Hortense Briggs lurching and spinning with none other than Sparser, the car thief Sparser, who, you know, to his credit, knows how to imitate a grizzly bear gracefully. So, of course, she's going to choose him for at least a moment or two. Now, when I picture the two of them doing the grizzly bear dance, what I'm picturing is, you know, the big dance scene in Thriller, where everybody's got their arms up, you know, and they're scurrying around. In my mind, that's what I'm picturing when I picture this grizzly bear dance. But they've moved on from grizzly bear dancing, and now they're just doing regular kind of dancing. Well, let's pick it up and see what Clyde's reaction here is. In a kind of sick fury, Clyde noticed that Sparser who was still with Hortense, was by now holding her close and looking straight into her eyes. Well, you don't want to do that with a grizzly bear. You get your head ripped off. Unless, perhaps, you're another grizzly bear. And she was permitting him. It gave him a a feeling of lead at the pit of his stomach. Was it possible she was beginning to like this young upstart who had this car? And she had promised to like him for the present. (laughs) She promised to like him. Well, he can't can't go back on that promise once you promise to like somebody. It brought to him a sense of her fickleness, the probability of her real indifference to him. He wanted to do something, stop dancing and get her away from Sparser but there was no use until this particular record ran out. And then, just at the end of this, the waiter returned with a tray and put down cocktails, ginger ale, and sandwiches upon three small tables which had been joined together. All but Sparser and Hortense quit and came toward it, a fact which Clyde was quick to note. She was a heartless flirt. She really did not care for him after all, and after making him think that she did so recently, and getting him to help her with that coat, she could go to the devil now. He would show her. He was waiting for her. Wasn't that the limit? Yet finally seeing that the others were gathering about the tables, which had been placed near the fire, Hortense and Sparser ceased dancing and approached. Clyde was white and glum. He stood to one side, seemingly indifferent, and Laura Sipe, who had already noted his rage and understood the reason, now moved away from him to join Tina Kogel, to whom she explained why he was so angry. I imagine that conversation would go something like this. Hey, Tina, look at Clyde. He's white with fury. I wonder why. Well, don't you get it? It's Hortense, it's Hortense, spinning around the room with Sparser, who's supposed to be my date. And now here they are, embarrassing the two of us like that. How dare he, and how dare she, poor Clyde. That, that's the way that conversation would go. It was um, a kind of a dramatic interpretation that I'm feeling very good about. And then, noting his glumness, Hortense came over, executing a phase of the grisly as she did so. (laughs) That's just rubbing salt in the wound. I mean, 
He's seen her doing the grizzly with Sparser, and now she's doing it for him? Not so good. Gee, wasn't that swell, she began. Gee, how I do love to dance to music like that. Sure, swell for you, returned Clyde, burning with envy and disappointment. Why, what's the trouble, she asked, in a low and almost injured tone, pretending not to guess, yet knowing quite well why he was angry. You don't mean to say that you're mad because I danced with him first, do you? Oh, how silly. Why didn't you come over then and dance with me? I couldn't refuse to dance with him when he was right there, could I? Oh, no, of course you couldn't, replied Clyde sarcastically and in a low, tense tone, for he, no more than Hortense, wanted the others to hear. But you didn't have to fall all over him and dream in his eyes either, did you? He was fairly blazing. You needn't say you didn't, because I saw you. At this she glanced at him oddly, realizing not only the sharpness of his mood, but that this was the first time he had shown so much daring in connection with her. It must be that he was getting to feel too sure of her. She was showing him too much attention. At the same time, she realized that this was not the time to show him that she did not care for him as much as she would like to have him believe, since she wanted the coat already agreed upon. Well, that's, that's really the crux of the problem, isn't it? Here she is, whoring herself out for the coat, and the coat isn't secured yet, so she's got to continue whoring herself out, but she, she doesn't care for him. And he knows it, she knows it. He knows, she knows it, she knows, he's, she knows, he knows it. But they're trying, to, they're trying to make believe for each other, all for the stu- sake of this stupid coat, and for him, for the sake of a little, you know, do-re-mi. I don't mean do-re-mi, but substitute whatever sexual euphemism you want. Oh, gee, well, ain't that the limit, she replied angrily, yet more because she was irritated by the fact that what he said was true than anything else. If you aren't the grouch, well, I can't help it. If you're going to be as jealous as that, I didn't do anything but dance with him just a little. I didn't think you'd be mad. She moved as if to turn away, but realizing that there was an understanding between them and that he must be placated if things were to go on, she drew him by his coat lapels out of the range of the hearing of the others who were already looking and listening and began. Now see here, you, don't go acting like this. I didn't mean anything by what I did, honest I didn't. Anyhow, everybody dances like that now, and nobody means anything by it. Aren't you going to let me be nice to you like I said? Or are you? Everybody dances like that now. Isn't that, don't we just hear that from all the kids doing the lambada these days? All those kids doing the forbidden dance. And when we elders object, they say, well, aren't you just the thing? That's what everybody, everybody's doing the forbidden dance now. We don't mean anything by it. Sure, thrusting your hips around, gyrating like a couple of mad monkeys. Nobody means anything by it. By God, I see the outline of your genitals in your pants. Nobody means anything by it. This is exactly why they made that that movie Footloose. To prevent the adolescents of this nation or any other from getting themselves pregnant from dancing. And that's what this all comes down to, doesn't it?
illicit, immoral behavior leading to sexual congress, and I don't care for it. You know, when I was a young man, I was on the side of Kevin Bacon there in, uh, on Footloose. No more. No more, I tell you. I'm on the side of who played the, the deacon there, John Lithgow or something? And now she looked him coaxingly and winsomely and calculatingly straight in the eye, as though he were the one person among all these present whom she really did like. And deliberately, and of a purpose, she made a pursy, sensuous mouth, the kind she could make, and practiced a play of the lips of the lips that caused them to seem to want to kiss him, a mouth that tempted him to distraction. All right, he said, looking at her weakly and yieldingly. I suppose I am a fool, but I saw what you did, all right. You know I'm crazy about your Hortense, just wild. I can't help it. I wish I could sometimes. I wish I wouldn't be such a fool. And he looked at her and was sad. And she, realizing her power over him and how easy it was to bring him around, replied, Oh, you, you don't either. I'll kiss you after a while when the others aren't looking, if you'll be good. At the same time, she was conscious of the fact that Sparser's eyes were upon her, also that he was intensely drawn to her, and that she liked him more than anyone she had recently encountered. End of chapter 17, and I guess we'll leave it there. So we've got a little love triangle developing here. Well, it's not really a love triangle, is it? It's an affair of the heart developing between Hortense and Sparser. And then you've got a, you've got a third there hanging off the side with 50 bucks named Clyde Griffiths. Clyde Griffiths whose only attraction for Hortense is his billfold. And it's a, it's a sad and terrible thing, isn't it? When one's affections are corrupted by the almighty dollar. It's a horror show is what it is. So how are they going to get through this day at the wigwam without something breaking? Uh, I don't know, you know. Look, not a lot happened in this episode. We can agree, with, we can agree there. They made it to the hotel. Hortense danced with Sparser. Clyde got mad. Hortense brought him around. But now you've got these two kids, Hortense and Sparser, obviously with a thing for each other. And uh, Hortense isn't one to deny her own desires, I suspect. How it'll play out? Couldn't say. But we'll find out on another. Oh, gee, what's the word I'm looking for? It's got something to do with, a, you know, like alluring. Well, why don't we just go with alluring? With another alluring episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. If you listen and like the show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks. Thanks.